Most of you know Pastor Boone is away with his family this weekend, so I have the opportunity to preach from God's Word. And if you're a guest, you should know that uh, I did not choose this text. This text was assigned to me. And uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, I didn't think that was funny, but uh, maybe it is. Um, maybe after I get done, you'll think it's funny. Uh, but the point is, we're going through a book of the Bible. And I have visited churches and uh, I listened to the message that day, and I thought, isn't it interesting? The pastor must have looked at all the newspapers and the, the latest news magazines and thought, wow, what should I preach on that would be so relevant? And then after he preached, you know, I found out that he was just going through a book of the Bible and that the Word of God is that relevant. And so that, you know, no matter what book we use, uh, it's going to be relevant. But if God puts his finger on something in your life this morning as a result of this text, I want you to know that I'm not picking on you, all right? This text was assigned to me, and the Spirit of God is at work, as He always is, using His Word. And that's, that's my prayer. And our theme this morning, of course, is Fight the Good Fight. That's our title. And our text is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. If you haven't gotten there yet, go ahead and get to that text. And if you happen to have not brought a Bible and you want to use the one in front of you and the rack in front of you, it's page 1410. So we have a war on terror going on in our country, but it doesn't seem to make the daily headlines the way some wars in our country's past have made headlines. Nonetheless, our country really is in a conflict against terror. Sometimes it's front page news, but more often than not, I think it's the economy, unemployment, the uh, budget deficits, and the latest superstar scandal that are using up the paper and the ink. But we ought not to lose sight of the fact that we are in a war against terror. It's a real conflict. It's a, a real enemy. There are real casualties and injuries, and really much is truly at stake. And whether we want to admit it or not, we do have an enemy that really wants to see our country uh, stumble and fall. But it's my observation that believers, the, the church in the United States, that we have a similar view of the spiritual conflict that we are in. We know it's there. We know that there's a spiritual battle. We hear the reports. There are times that the news flares up. We're glad someone's fighting it, but more often than not, we ourselves live day to day consumed by budgets, gadgets, and responsibilities without that sense of urgency that we are in a war with evil. And so we need to fight the good fight. Last week, Pastor Boone set the stage in a sense by preaching on verse 17 and telling us, that God is sovereign king, he's eternal, he's immortal, he's invisible, he's the only God, that he has no peer, there is no one like him, and he can be trusted. That verse provides a wonderful background for us as we think about this terrible spiritual conflict that's about us, that we have a great God who's mighty and he, we can trust him, we can have confidence, we can move forward in this battle knowing. In fact, if you've, if you've read the end of the book, you know who wins, and we have great confidence in our God. 
And so we're in a warfare. And if, if you would please uh, hold your Bible there and uh, read. I, I'm going to read to you, but read it along with me in your heart, the text. I'll include verse 17, 1 Timothy 1, verses 17 to 20. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So we're told to fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. The reason it's a military setting is the word itself comes from the idea of a military maneuver. If you were to pronounce the Greek word, you would be saying strategy. And a stratagem is a military tactic. A war is going on. That's what Paul is saying. Fight the good fight. You could translate it, war the good warfare. Later on in the, in the book of Timothy, he'll say, he'll say the same words, at least in the English, fight the good fight. But there's a different word in the background there. It's a, a, a athletic contest word. It could be translated, agonize the good agony. That's 1 Timothy 6.12. But our text today has a warfare context. War, the good warfare. Now, we know who wins, but the question is, what part will you play and what will you sacrifice to serve your commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question before the house this morning. We're not worried about who's going to win the battle. That's not in question. But what I am asking today of you is, what will you do? How will you sacrifice? In what way will you allow your life to be used so that you can have a part in this conflict? And so we are told to fight the good fight or war the good warfare. So I have, I, I organized the, my message around three thoughts and, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get an understanding of the text as a result and then make some application. So first, I want you to consider with me the nature of this battle, the the nature of this this warfare. And if you look at the text, verse 18, Timothy said, or Paul says, Timothy, this command I entrust to you. And, you know, the question is, what does he mean by this command? Is it something new? Is it something he's about to say? Is he referring to something he said before? What, What is he saying? And he's really repeating himself. And so the nature of the conflict is that this is urgent. And the reason I use the word urgent is because he's repeating the command. He gave the command originally in verse 3 when he said to Timothy, he said, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach those strange doctrines. We just sang the hymn this morning, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. I don't need any strange doctrines. I just need the gospel. I need the grace of God. That's all I need. But these men in Ephesus, these false teachers, they come up with some other strange teachings. And so Paul says to Timothy, remain there and and restrain the false teachers and correct the false teaching. That was the command. Now he's reiterating. He's saying it again. Timothy, this command, this, this warfare that you are in, I want you to, I want you to take it seriously. It's urgent. So it's a repeated command. So the nature of the battle, first of all, is it's urgent. 
It's serious. Secondly, it's strenuous. We get that idea from the, the idea of war. War is hard. It takes effort, concentration, and thought. And it's going to require us to spend less time in entertainment and more time engaged in the matters that really matter to God. I hope you hear that. It's going to require a strenuous concentration. Thirdly, about the nature of the battle is that this battle is authentic. Paul said, fight the good fight or war the good warfare. It's good. In other words, it's authentic. This battle is worth fighting. There are some battles that aren't worth your time. They're not worth your, your exertion. But Paul is saying, this one's worth it. It's a good fight. It's a good warfare. So it's worth fighting. And this is what makes life count. This is where God is at work. It's a noble fight. It's worth your time, your finances, your energy, and your talent. Don't be on the sidelines. He's Get involved. You can give your life to this fight because it's a good fight. It's a good warfare. Also, the nature of this battle is that, as you would guess, it's instigated by Satan himself. Satan is opposed to all that is good and godly. And he stands hopelessly proud against the authority of Christ in the gospel. He stands hopelessly proud against the authority of Christ and the gospel. How does Satan operate? Well, he operates by intimidation and threats. Just have to read the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, they're coming to get you. They're coming to get you. Just read the book and and look at all the ways that Nehemiah's enemies intimidated him. That's how Satan operates. He, He operates by threat. So watch out for those times in your life, but you're threatened for being truthful or godly. Satan is at work behind all that. But remember, God is the victor. Keep trusting God. Keep trusting Christ and his word. And don't give in to intimidation. But Satan also operates by persecution. Satan does bring real suffering into the life of believers to discourage and to silence them. And this is an age in which persecution is happening all around the world. And the whole idea of it is, if you just shut up, I'll take the pressure off. But don't let Satan take the, uh, silence you, even if it means persecution. The scripture says that if you suffer because of your faith in the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Satan also operates by temptation. He sets traps which he brings to us. And he exploits our own sinful desires. And sadly, sometimes we even, or I even, set the table. You ever do that? You ever make yourself vulnerable to temptation? The Bible says, don't make any provision for the flesh. So don't do things that put you in harm's way or put you in the way of temptation. So if you struggle with donuts, don't drive by Dunkin' Donuts every day. Don't put yourself in the place of temptation. Don't make a way for it. Satan operates by temptation. He also operates by deception. He promises the world fulfillment, satisfaction, power, pleasure. But then after you've yielded, he, it turns around and he only gives you uh, suffering and heartache and sorrow and despair, addictions, and a general sense of ruin. And so when you're tempted, his face is pretty. But after you yield, you find that he put on the district attorney hat And now he's throwing the book at you. He's accusing you before God. That's how Satan operates. He operates by deception. And he operates by heresy. 
half-truths and outright lies. And that was Timothy's struggle. He was, oper- he was fighting against the deception and the, and the false teaching of these men who had crept into the church. Now, Pastor Boone already outlined the false teaching that had crept into the Ephesian church. It was basically a gospel of works. You can be saved by being good, by keeping the law. Uh, and these false teachers had kind of lapsed into a religion of the Old Testament uh, and not understanding the grace of God, that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so then he, and he used his, himself, Paul himself, as an example of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, where he says, you know, I was a persecutor and a blasphemer and a violent man. This was my life. I was on a trajectory of hate and, and murder and, and opposing Christ. And then, and then the Holy Spirit got a hold of my life. I, I was on the way to Damascus and I was blinded and, and God opened my heart. I, I finally understood this Christ who was, whose name I was blaspheming and, and I, I repented and trusted in Christ and God forgave me. And it was all by grace. It wasn't that I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. It was, it was the, it was the grace of God, the gospel of God. And, and that is, that is the message. It's, it's salvation by grace through faith. And the teachers that had crept in had added works, and so they perverted and polluted the message. Paul mentions two men there in verse 20. Do you see them? Kind of hard to pronounce. Hymenaeus and Alexander. There's another false teacher mentioned, Second Timothy Philetus, at least three, maybe others, that are mentioned as they're highlighted as the people who were promoting this false gospel. But let's just stop and make an application for just a moment. My question to you is, do you have the true gospel? Have you trusted in the real Jesus? And, and, are you tr- and is your understanding of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? And if it is, you can rejoice. But then my question is, are you sharing it? Are you promoting it? There are plenty, plenty of false teachers. As someone said, while truth is putting on its shoes, lies have run around the world. There's plenty of false teaching out there. But if you have the true gospel, if you understand it, are you promoting it or are you keeping silent? I encourage you to proclaim it. And another thing about this whole idea of the warfare. Do you have a military or a uh, a warrior mentality or have you become a civilian in the spiritual battle? Without a warrior mentality... Lethargy creeps into our daily routine. I guarantee you, without this mentality, the secret law of the soul is that you will begin to become lethargic spiritually. Now, let me give you a couple symptoms of this. Number one, there's a lack of scripture reading and prayer. You can find all kinds of excuses and, you know, you don't keep up with it and it's just not a priority. There's an undue focus on entertainment rather than engaging in spiritual conflict. And really, if you're honest, you really can't remember the last time you shared the gospel with the 10 or 20 people that you know that you rub shoulders with in a month's time. You just can't remember the last time you shared that message of truth. There's, there's just some of the symptoms of that mentality of civilian life, taking it easy, loosening the grip. And the Bible says that this, the nature of this conflict is real and it's a good fight. And it's, it's something that we ought to get into and not relax. And so I ask you, are you in the battle? 
Secondly, now that's the nature of the conflict. Now, I want you to see the weapons that Paul talks about that Timothy should use in this conflict. The first weapon, believe it or not, for him is a look back. It's a look back. So look with me at the text in verse 18. He says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Then he says that purpose called that by them, by the prophecies made uh, concerning you in the past, you may fight the good fight. So what's this weapon that that Paul says he ought to, his Timothy ought to use in fighting this good fight? The first weapon is he looks back. He's going to look back to his call. Evidently, there was a time in Timothy's life that when at some point in time around perhaps his ordination, when he was placed formally into the ministry with the Apostle Paul, that there were uh, people there who had the gift of prophecy. Maybe they had their hands on them. And, they, and as they were praying, uh, God gave a special message about Timothy. And while we don't know exactly what the, the special message was, it was something that Paul heard, and it gave Paul, as well as Timothy, great confidence about Timothy's future ministry. Whatever was said was, was enough that Paul was convinced that God had his hand on Timothy and had great things in store for him. God was going to use Timothy. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, you're in this battle. And I want to remind you, as you look back, would you please remember that day when God spoke clearly and said, I've got a great ministry for this young man, Timothy. Look back. And so that's an encouragement to all of us. Now, now maybe you're saying, well, you know, I wasn't called into the ministry. But you need to know that the moment that God called you to himself, when God opened your heart and you trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, the moment that that occurred, God called you into the conflict. You were immediately drafted. You didn't you didn't choose it. You were put right into the conflict. So understand that every child of God is also a warrior. And when you think about the hardness of the conflict, remember that the moment that you were born into the family of God, God put, put a suit on you. It was a suit of armor. And he wants you to, to fight in this battle. But, you know, when we ordain men into the ministry, I, I've been in the ministry for over 20 years and watched many in the ordination service. I and I've watched men lay their hands on uh, a new pastor or pastors. I, I haven't heard uh, a word of prophecy. But what we do is we give them a charge. We speak to them. And, and this, is what, this is basically what we say. And perhaps some of these things were said to Timothy. We will tell them to set an example for others to follow. To expect and to overcome difficulties through the power of Jesus Christ living in them. To revel in the blessings of being God's instrument in the lives of other people. Where God uses a pastor to, to be an instrument of change in spiritual transformation in his people. Where they accept the challenges of working with God's wonderful but imperfect people. Remembering that the pastor himself is also an imperfect pastor. We tell them as they are ordained that they're in a race. So they ought to run well and run long and run away to win. We tell them that they're in a war and that they ought to fight hard and not to retreat, 
to battle evil with the, the powerful spiritual weapons, to stand against the enemy of souls and the strength and the grace and the hope and wisdom and majesty of Jesus Christ. And we tell them that it's, it's, it's all about Jesus Christ and the victory he won at the cross and the empty tomb. And we tell them, preach Jesus and his truth and not their own wisdom and not their opinions and not ten simple steps to a successful life. We tell them not to worry about the crowds, but to preach the cross. Men, if what I just said resonates with you in your heart, in your ears, and if what you just heard stirs something in your being that says, yes, that's what I want to give my life to. Men, if that's what God is saying to you, would you please listen to God? He might be calling you into the ministry. To hardness of study, to teaching the truth in an age that doesn't believe God's truth, to dealing with men's souls so that they put their faith and hope in the living Christ, to counseling them in the word of God, to sometimes waking up at night to pray because of the hardness of hearts, and then watching God answer prayer, to shepherding the flock. And if that's resonating with you and you say, that's what I want, my, I want to do with my life, then perhaps God is placing his hand upon you this day and he's saying, son... There are many ways to serve me, and every way is honorable. And the way I have for you to serve me is a pastor or a missionary or a church planter. If you hear his voice, listen. Now, Paul's talking to a young man. And he's encouraging him. And I'm, I want to say something to, to you in general. Not, not just to men or everybody. Do you know any young adults? Do you know any young people, young men or young women? And uh, you know that they're on the cusp of making some important decisions or they're just starting their career or maybe they're just starting their family or whatever. You know that they're young and, and they're, they're, they're just beginning in one way or another. Have you ever thought about the fact that God may want you to come alongside that young man or that young woman to encourage them to say, like Paul said to Timothy, you know, Timothy, remember those wonderful messages that were that were said about you and and God has great plans for you. He's going to use you wonderfully. Would you be willing to say that to a young adult, young person, maybe a teenager? God has his hand on you. He wants to use you. I'm going to pray for you. I encourage you to do that. So, he says to look back. Look back on what, what God has said. And look back on the call. And, and, and remember God has his hand on you. And be encouraged. And God wants to use you. That's a weapon in this fight. It's a weapon to look back and understand that God didn't make any mistakes and he, and he wants to use you today. And God placed you in this war the day he drew you to faith in Jesus Christ. That's looking back. That's part of this weapon, the weapons of fighting. Another weapon is to look up in faith to God. Not only look back and see 
the pl- knowing that God has a plan for you and wants to use you. But he's then he says, Timothy, I want you to look up. Look at the text with me. He says, I, I, I want you to fight the good fight. That's the last phrase of verse 18. Fight the good fight. Then he says in verse 19, keeping faith, keeping faith. Now, it also says good conscience, but we'll get to that. Keeping faith. I am labeling that. That's the weapon of looking up. When you keep faith, what you're doing is you're continuing to trust God. You're continuing to, to look to him. It's, it's an all-encompassing term. It, it doesn't just mean the right beliefs. It, in, it includes that. And it, it doesn't only mean agreeing with those right beliefs. It includes that. But it's more than that. It's a, a daily trust in God. It's a daily commitment. It's a daily decision that God will be enough. It's a daily stand that God is able. And so I keep looking up to him. I, I trust in him I, I, with those right beliefs, the right gospel and a right understanding of God, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, all that from verse 17. I look up, look at this great God who who is for you, not against you and trust in him. Lay hold of his promises and and take the hope that he gives you and and trust in his daily grace to see you through the trials of life. And because if, if you don't trust God daily, you will begin to like it's happened to me. If you don't trust God for what he calls you to do, then you begin to make excuses about what you're not doing. And when you learn to trust God and say, well, God, if you ask me to do that, then you must have decided already to give me the strength to accomplish it. So I'll go ahead and do it. And God gives the grace because we trust in him. If you trust God daily, you won't have to make excuses for disobedience. And when he gives a command, you know that he gives the grace to accomplish it. So he says to Timothy, I want you to look back, be encouraged. God has a plan. I want you to look up. God is able. He's faithful. Then he says, look in. That's another weapon. That's what he means when he says, keep hold of a good conscience. Look in. He says, uh, our conscience. Now, our conscience is, a, is that part of us that helps us self-judge. It's an internal courtroom. It's a courtroom inside of our hearts. When we do something wrong, it renders a verdict in our hearts. It registers guilty. Or we consider doing something or saying something wrong, and our conscience says, no, you shouldn't do that. Or you're thinking about a decision, and your conscience gives you freedom. It says, it's okay, that's good. And you, you get an innocent verdict on that. Your conscience gives you freedom before God to, to do something or say something. But apart from, apart from the life-giving work of the Spirit who makes our conscience good, our conscience is unreliable. We need the work of the Spirit first in our conscience. When the Spirit of God causes a person to be born again, He gives him or her a good conscience. Now, it must be taught day by day in the word. But the spirit of God, by his miraculous power, not only purifies our hearts, but he untangles our conscience. He renovates it. He sets it up, sets it up to function as a proper internal voice to guide our decisions and our actions. The spirit of God changes our conscience in the same way that our hearts are purified. 
And we're supernaturally changed from the inside out by God's power. So this is the hope of the gospel. This is the joy of the gospel. He gives us a pure heart, a good conscience. And then once the Spirit of God does His work, then God calls us to maintain a good conscience. It Now it's set up to function the way it's supposed to function, and He calls us to draw on His strength to, to maintain a good conscience. So Paul said in the second letter to Timothy, verse chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. A good or clear conscience is one that is not accusing you of guilt for sins. In other words, you're not harboring guilt for sins in the past because you've not confessed them and made things right, even if it means confessing them to others. For instance, Hebrews 13, 18, Paul says, or the writer, we don't know if it's Paul or not, Hebrews, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So if you want a, a good conscience, you cannot live life compromising God's standards and treating God's word like a buffet table where, you know, you go and pick this, but you don't take that. And you kind of pick and choose and kind of create your own new little Bible. It's not it doesn't work that way. The Bible's one whole revelation of God. And we take the whole of it and we and we can't compromise it. And so we keep all of God's word. <coughs> And it's doing what we say we will do, and it's being authentic. A good conscience. Now, there are many places to hide. And you can hide in the pew, and you can hide behind a computer screen at night. And you can watch things that are improper for God's people. And you can, you can rationalize and say, well, I haven't hurt anybody. But I want to ask you, who is over your shoulder? It is the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. That's who's there. See, a good conscience is a wonderful weapon because it's saying that I understand that the holy God's, the presence of a holy God is near me at all times. And it doesn't matter whether the policeman is in the medial strip with his radar gun or not. See, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, God is there. And so a good conscience means that I live in the presence of God and obey him because I love him and because he's there and I want to please him. It doesn't have to be those kind of images on on the screen or those racy, steamy novels that have men and women in poses that I don't think anybody can do anyway. But uh, it can be any it can be anything. It can be uh, taxes. You know, it's tax time. So, you know, what about your conscience and related relation to taxes or what about a friendship with the opposite sex? That's wrong. Um, are you living with someone that's not your spouse? Are you hoping that I don't mention a particular sin that has just come up in your mind? The Spirit of God does that. The Spirit of God works because He's working in our conscience. What about your work habits and your family and your marriage? God's glory is at stake here. It's about the majestic glory of Christ and His understanding of our own heart. And to fight this battle, we have to have a good conscience a conscience that is clear 
a conscience that is clean, a conscience that has been cleansed through confession, both to God and and those necessary. That is how we fight this good fight. So Paul is telling his son in the faith to fight the good fight by looking back at the encouragement of God's call on his life, to looking up in faith and continual trust in the faithful character of God, and then to watch carefully, look in, and look at his own life and watch his life, his way of life, carefully. But just in case Timothy doesn't get it, just in case, case Timothy's not seeing it, he does one more thing. So we have the nature of the conflict, we have the weapons for the conflict, and now we have a warning about this conflict. Look at the text. Paul says, keeping faith and a good conscience. And then this is verse 19. Which some, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then he names them. Among these, more than just two, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So there's a, a serious warning here as we come to the close of our message. The implication here is that what has happened to these two men, that their lives are shipwrecked, could happen to Timothy. Remember what Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians? He said, therefore, th- let those who think they stand take heed lest they fall. When Paul said farewell to the elders at Ephesus from the town of Miletus, he said this to those men. He says, after I leave you, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he said this, and from among your own selves, from among the board of elders. That's what he's saying. He says, uh, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Then he said to Timothy later in this book, chapter 4, verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourselves and for those who hear. And the implication is, if you don't, there are grave consequences to be experienced. So watch out. The warning says that if you don't hold on to faith and a good conscience, keep the right beliefs, keep trusting in God, and, and watch your life and keep, keep your conscience clear before God. If you don't hold on to them, if you relax your grip, Paul says to Timothy, you could be heading for shipwreck. Now, shipwreck is not a pretty picture, but it is a graphic visual aid, is it not? Think about a shipwreck. Shipwreck means that the ship has run aground, it's hit a sandbar, uh, or a great wave has crashed over it, and now it's breaking apart. And the pieces now are in the ocean, and if you're in the boat, you're no longer safe. You're clinging to one of those shards of the ship, and you're in danger, and, and pieces are everywhere, and it's a crisis. And you're battered, but one wave after the other, exposed and that's what shipwrecked life, a shipwrecked life looks like. And he says, that is what's happening. That's what's going to happen if you relax your grip on this issue of trusting God and of, of keeping a clear conscience. And then he says something very serious. 
about these two false teachers. He says, among these who have shipwrecked their faith are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says, I've handed them over to Satan. Now, that's an interesting phrase. And simply, it means that they have uh, Paul, by means of his, his position as an apostle. Now, we see the same text in 1 Corinthians 5 where a church does it. Paul uh, exposes these men to the power of Satan and returns them to Satan's control. Now, it's not trafficking, trafficking with Satan, but it's basically saying, God, we turn these men over to you and your purposes, and if it requires the, the buffeting and the discipline that, that Satan can bring, then we, we ask you to do that for the purpose of bringing them back so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. So this is a serious issue. This is kind of like the, the last, the, 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 the final part of church discipline when a, a whole bunch of other steps have not succeeded in drawing the unrepentant person back. Start with one-on-one, then you take another couple of people, and then you tell it to the elders. And eventually, if the person doesn't repent, you ha- they have to be excommunicated. And that's a, that's a serious issue. That's what this is. This is putting them out, out from under the umbrella of the church, the protection of Christ. They're under now uh, the influence of Satan, and then uh, suffering is, is brought into their life. And the whole idea is for them to, to get the message and then to come back. The whole point is restoration, to be taught. The word means child training, to learn a lesson, to be, to be brought back. It's not a popular concept today. Uh, the culture is, you know, live and let live and let everybody do their own thing and we shouldn't judge. And, and you know, big deal. You know, it, you know, they're not hurting anybody, quote unquote. But the Bible says that the church is only relevant to the degree it represents God's holiness. And if we neglect the discipline of people who are unrepentant, if we don't follow those steps and we don't say to them, you can't do this, not because we think it's wrong, but because God says it's wrong. If we neglect that, we're neglecting our duties as leaders. And we need to do this because of God's holiness and for the good of the person so that they would be brought back. And that's the whole idea. Now, one last thought. It's a thought about the majesty of Christ. And then we're going to sing a song and remind us of our need for holiness. Have you, did you think about this fact that Paul turned these two blasphemers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, these two blasphemers over to the father of blasphemy, Satan, to be taught not to blaspheme? Did you hear that? Think about that. Two blasphemers are handed over to the ultimate blasphemer to be taught not to blaspheme. How does that work? Well, it doesn't say it here. But think about it. Who possessed Judas to go and betray Jesus so that Jesus would be arrested in that quiet, secluded garden so that the whole process of his trial could begin? Who possessed Judas to do that? Was it not Satan? Wasn't Satan doing his worst? Here he was driving a man to betray the Savior. But in the process of doing the evil and getting Jesus on the cross, Satan himself is defeated at the cross. You see, God, he is so great. His sovereignty is so over all that he rules even and uses Satan as his tool. That is our God. And that's why we have confidence in this fight.
But this fight is going to require holiness. God uses holy vessels, people who, whose consciences are clear. And we're, I'm going to ask, uh, is it, are you, Tim, are you going to lead the song? We're going to sing this song as a concluding prayer that, we, that God, God would work his holiness in our hearts as we fight this battle against evil. Let's stand together. And can we have the words to this song? this as our closing prayer. like to pray with someone about anything in your life clear something up or a problem you want to pray about we'll have a leader and his spouse there so that we can pray with you and i encourage you to uh, go with god to walk with him to be holy and to be cleansed vessels the clear conscience and useful to god in the battle may the lord be with you and bless you this day and this week